Hi, my name's Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast series based on a book I wrote a few years ago titled Watch. Watch is a study on Jesus' talk he gave his disciples just a couple days prior to his crucifixion on the Mount of Olives. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, it's not absolutely necessary, but I'd like to suggest that you go back and start with episode number one. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while now, I hope they've been a benefit to you. It's really encouraging when I hear from listeners. I get statistics from the podcast platform and can tell there are listeners from all over the U.S. and, in fact, the world. I just don't know who you are. (laughs) I'm really curious about who's listening. Drop me an email sometime and let me know. My email address is doug at com. Well, 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead in his new glorified body, he stood before his followers somewhere in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives, perhaps around Bethany. He's ready to ascend to heaven and take his place next to his heavenly Father. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. Five days before his resurrection, on the same Mount of Olives he was close to when he ascended to heaven, Jesus gave his disciples the information he thought they needed to know about his return. The Mount of Olives seemed to be the place to ask Jesus about the future. The last thing they asked him before he started his ascent to heaven was if he was now going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Nothing had changed since the last time this topic came up on the Mount of Olives. Jesus told them, that it was not for them to know. Instead of Jesus telling them when the kingdom of heaven would be brought to this world, Jesus told them that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and give them power. They were to use that power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and throughout the entire world. After Jesus gave his original servants this final assignment, he defied nature as he was lifted up into the clouds. Afterwards, an angel satisfied a little of their curiosity and informed the awestruck disciples that Jesus would be returning to earth in much the same way as he just left it. He'll be in the sky and in plain sight. All of the future events we've looked at so far will serve as signs that the return of Jesus is imminent and require foreknowledge in order to have the ability to recognize them. However, the next sign that Jesus spoke of on the Mount of Olives will be unmistakable. It won't matter if a believer was ever aware of it beforehand, because it will result in every elected follower of Christ, whether awake, sleeping, or dead, being collected or gathered to Jesus. The gathering of believers to Jesus at His coming is the event commonly referred to as the rapture of the church. Although many traumatic and catastrophic events have been mentioned by Jesus, nowhere up to this point in his Olivet Discourse has there been any mention of the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. This is consistent with what we know from elsewhere in Scripture. The ecclesia, the chosen ones, will not suffer the wrath of God. Those who support the pre-tribulation rapture position say the church will not suffer God's wrath. They use this as one of their chief arguments. However, they associate all the events with the seven-year tribulation period with the day of the Lord and the wrath of God. Since they do so, they're led to the conclusion that the church will be raptured sometime prior to the tribulation period even beginning. If there is one key point of failure in the pre-tribulation rapture point of view, 
It's that they fail to recognize the difference between the tribulation period and the day of the Lord. Although the day of the Lord, which is God's wrath, begins sometime, we don't know when, within the second half of the tribulation period, the two terms are not synonymous. The pre-tribulation rapture theory says that the ecclesia will be rescued from this earth, or raptured, just before the day of the Lord begins and the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. The pre-wrath rapture position recognizes that deceptive teaching, the coming of false messiahs, persecution of Jews and Christians at the hand of the Antichrist, wars, famines, disease, economic collapse, and widespread death are not what should be considered a part of the day of the Lord. Rather, those things are part of living in a world that's groaning and travailing and being run by an evil tyrant. Both the pre-wrath rapture and the pre-tribulation rapture positions agree that the church will not suffer God's wrath for very sound reasons found in Scripture. What I'm going to read you here is found in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. This is from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to discard any theories pertaining to the rapture of the church that we've previously been taught, like the pre-tribulation rapture theory, we'd have no reason to believe from Scripture that a rapture has previously taken place up to this point in the Olivet Discourse. The Scriptures we're going to talk about today describe the final signs prior to the second coming of Christ. They describe the point at which the elect of God are rescued and the day of the Lord, which has been foretold both by Old Testament and New Testament prophets, will be announced. I've read a lot of questions online that fly around about what is the day of the Lord. Well, the day of the Lord is a time directly associated with the pouring out of God's wrath in judgment. God's wrath eventually destroys almost every recognizable geological feature of the earth and most of its inhabitants. So we can now conclude anything prior to the second coming event cannot be considered a part of the day of the Lord and God's wrath. Consequently, any event prior to this point in the Olivet Discourse we've talked about does not qualify the church as suffering God's wrath. It's important to understand here what Jesus was just talking about. He had just finished speaking of the persecution and death of his followers, of falling away from the faith, the abomination of desolation, and fleeing when he said the following. And this is moving on in the Olivet Discourse. This is Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. This is my own translation. Please read it in your own translation. Immediately after the persecution of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not yield its light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man shall be seen in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
and he will send his angels with the sounding of a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. The book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 24 to 27, puts it this way, But in those days, after the persecution, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not yield its light, and the stars shall fall out of the heavens, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then the Son of Man will appear coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And then he will send angels, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. And finally, Dr. Luke puts it this way in chapter 21, verses 25 to 28. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. The nations of the earth will be distressed and perplexed. The waves of the sea will roar. Men's hearts will fail them out of fear. And looking forward with expectation to what is coming on the earth, the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to happen, lift your heads and look up, for your deliverance and redemption is drawing near. According to some, there will be no warnings prior to the second coming of Christ. They claim that there will be two second comings of Christ. The first one will be in secret. That's when they say that Christ will return to rapture or gather his church. All of those who are saved will simply vanish from the earth and they'll be taken away. Then later, the second second coming or the third advent of Christ will be for all to see. Those who hold to this theory dissect the available prophetic scriptures pertaining to Christ's coming, devoting some of them to a secret coming and some to a coming of Jesus for all to see. Well, there are many problems with the secret rapture theory. The largest, as we'll see, is that once one compares all the scriptures with each other pertaining to the second coming of Christ, the scriptures are all used up. There are none left to support two different comings. The coming of the Messiah will clearly not be in secret. Jesus goes from talking about the persecution of those that believe in him right into the sign of his coming, even going so far as to say, immediately after the distress of those days. Jesus has previously hinted about this rescue twice already in the Olivet Discourse. One time in Matthew 24, verse 22, where it says, And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Well, he's talking about this rapture or rescue event. The other time Jesus previously hinted of the rapture is found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 28, where it says, For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Now, I hope you listened to that explanation on the previous podcast. Well, the rapture event we're now looking at is the shortening of those days. What we now see is the eagles that I just referred to, or the angels, gathering the carcasses, <laughs> the elect, the bodies of the elect, whether they're living or, or dead at the time of the return of Jesus. 
So the following is a composite of the final signs that will accompany the second coming of Christ as recorded in the three different synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which I just read them. So this is kind of a uh, compilation of all three. The sun appears to go black. The moon loses its light. The stars appear to fall from the sky. The powers of heavens will be shaken. The waves of the seas become very violent and roar. People experience great fear and anxiety. They're anguished and perplexed because of what is coming on the world. Then Jesus appears in power and glory. There is a loud trumpet call as the elect are gathered from every corner of the world. None of that sounds very secretive to me. I have a confession to make. I held the view for many years that Jesus would originally come in secret simply because that's what I'd been taught my entire life. Before my intensive study of scriptures, I wholeheartedly bought into the pre-tribulation rapture theory. I believed Jesus' return would happen without warning and could literally happen at any minute of any day. I've been in many church services on Sunday morning that ended with the pastor inviting people back for the Sunday evening service, unless, as the preacher would say, Christ would return that afternoon. What a happy 21st century American worry-free, responsibility-free, night-before-Christmas-like anticipation thing to have believed in. I did not trade this theory for what I now believe to be the truth easily. I'd love to say that I still think Jesus will suddenly show up and quietly catch us away without any warning and before anything bad happens. However, decades of study, prayer, seeking others' opinions, and meditation have led me to a different conclusion. My hope is no less great. It's just more biblically based. It's a complicated house of cards that makes the pre-tribulation rapture theory work. But for a number of reasons, most modern-day evangelical Christians still believe in that house of cards. Statistically, most evangelical Christians believe it. The theory is commonly taught from the pulpit by those pastors who at least have enough courage to talk about the end of the age at all. Pastors are still taught this theory in most conservative Christian evangelical seminaries, and few have the courage to rock the boat. Thank God that his elect can still learn about the second coming and the end of the age from Jesus' own words found in the Bible, rather than from some seminary. It's my own opinion that most pastors believe that the study of the end of the age, or eschatology, is just too complicated and controversial to attempt to gain a more in-depth understanding. Evangelical pastors now face not only simply teaching what Jesus said on the topic, but they have to address all of the false theories about what will take place. The pre-tribulation rapture theory, for example, is deeply ingrained in much of Christian culture. It's even been included in many study Bibles since the early 1900s. I'll likely do a special edition podcast in the future addressing where the pre-tribulation rapture theory came from, but for now it'd be getting a little bit too far off track. Anyway, how difficult would it then be with what many pastors would admit to having a limited understanding of the end times to teach this topic to others once a week in under an hour and 15 minutes, including worship music, offering, and prayer? 
Even when a pastor does decide to start studying end times prophecy for some reason, like college professors with the breakthrough ideas in their field of expertise who don't want to take on the world of academia only to be branded a fool, most pastors don't want to go out on their own and differ with their seminary, their conference, or their elders. Nor do they want to upset their congregation by teaching them something other than a pain-free, end-of-the-age theory. Like so many other aspects of Christian doctrines, we want to make people feel good, so we sugarcoat things. We can all be healthy, wealthy, and happy in Christ. If we follow God's plan, our lives here on earth will go great for us. We don't like plainly presenting things that are difficult to hear because we think we'll lose our audience, or at the very least, make someone sad or worried. It's really difficult to risk offending people with a blunt presentation of the truth. A God that would never allow me or anyone else to suffer is a much easier God to sell. So when the details of the pre-tribulation rapture theory don't really feel right or make total sense, pastors and teachers engage in cognitive dissonance and attempt to place their faith in something unworthy of it. As I've already said, many, not all, pre-tribulation rapturists say Christ's return will be imminent and they talk of his secret coming, a coming other than the famous second coming. The secret coming is a main part of what they refer to as the blessed hope. It's this secret coming in which Christ will rapture his church. Pre-tribulationists rely on scriptures that say Jesus will return as a, quote, thief in the night, unquote normally failing to point out the second part of the scripture. And here is that scripture. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 to 5. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. The group of Christians that the Apostle Paul is addressing in his letter are being told that, unlike non-believers, they do not have to be caught off guard and surprised by the day of the Lord. As we've seen, there will be signs that precede it. Likewise, those that hold the pre-tribulation rapture view are quick to point out the following verse about Christ's return, implying that it means Christ's return will be a total surprise. This verse is actually from the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But that day and hour knows no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Of course, that's referring to the return of Jesus. Those who believe in the imminent, no-warning return of Christ do sometimes admit that we can recognize the general season that Christ will return, but not the day or hour. This is, in fact, very biblically-based truth. However, the signs that they cite as indicators of the season of Christ's return are very subjective, and they have almost always indicated that the season of the Messiah's return must be now. 
If we can determine where in sequence the rapture of the church takes place in relation to the prophetic events that will actually be significant, such as the abomination of desolation, we'll want to watch for those significant events that precede the rapture. Logically, if we have the ability to recognize those events and are watching for them, we will not be caught sleeping like the rest of the world. Like Paul said, there's no need to be caught off guard if one truly is a child of the light. Who Paul's calling children of the light will be able to recognize the season, guard against deception, and while not knowing the day or hour, will know that Christ's return will be very soon. The doctrine of the imminent return of Christ is very important to many modern-day evangelicals. I've had my eternal standing with Christ called to question over the issue by those that passionately hold to that belief. I do completely agree that you could be meeting Jesus face-to-face in the next few hours. However, unless you're reading this after the Antichrist has committed the abomination of desolation, I believe that you'll only be meeting Jesus if you've dropped over dead. Either way, I hope to see you at the rapture. Staunch defenders of the pre-tribulation rapture theory base much of their defense of that theory on the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus. They tend to place that doctrine higher in importance than what Scripture plainly says. In other words, Scripture can't say that there will be any signs prior to the coming of Jesus because of the doctrine of his imminent return. The return of Jesus will be imminent for everyone, in that no one knows when the future seven-year tribulation period will begin. Then, once it does begin, and the abomination of desolation takes place, not even those who are watching will know when, in the next three and a half years, Jesus will return. Certainly, those not watching for the return of the Lord will be overtaken by Jesus like he is a thief in the night. The doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus will hold true for them. That group will unfortunately include many Christians who are not looking for the hard signs Jesus gave, because they've been taught there won't be any. The bottom line is that we should not hold Scripture accountable to fit into doctrines such as the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus. We should hold doctrines accountable to fit into Scripture. Children of the light do not need to be caught off guard. Although we won't know the day or hour because we have been given signs, we will know when the time is near, and it won't be based on some ambiguous signs that have always existed or on some feeling that we have. We will know based on the hard signs we have been given to watch for. In the Olivet Discourse, the second coming of Christ is tied directly to the gathering of the elect, which immediately follows the signs in the heavens. Specific Unmistakable and awesome signs and events like Jesus gave us makes it easy to compare Scripture with Scripture and sometimes determine that they're talking about the same event. See if you find any similarities between the Olivet Discourse passage concerning the signs in the heavens and the following Scripture I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 6, when the sixth seal of the scroll of God's judgment is loosed. This is from Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she's shaken of a mighty wind. 
And the heaven departed as a scroll when it's rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Here, the Apostle John was having a vision of very similar signs Jesus said would take place immediately preceding his coming during the Olivet Discourse. The sun goes black, the moon turns red, or as the Olivet Discourse puts it, loses its light, and the stars appear to fall from the sky. Several things happen next in John's vision. The commoners, the rich, the rulers, the nations, they hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks out of fear of what God will do to them. Recognizing that this is a supernatural sign, they announce, the great day of the Lord has come. After the announcement that the day of the Lord has come in the book of Revelation, we read that 144,000 descendants of the tribes of Israel who are to remain on the earth are, quote, sealed, unquote. Since they, unlike the church, will remain on the earth throughout the day of the Lord, in which God's wrath will be poured out, they're given God's seal of supernatural protection. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. After this, with John's perspective being in heaven, he witnesses the following. This is Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Who are these people who suddenly show up in heaven after the sun appears to go black, the moon appears to turn red, and the stars appear to fall from the sky? From earlier descriptions in Revelation of the scene in heaven, we know that this group was not previously present. They only have shown up after the sixth seal was broken and before the seventh and final seal was loosed. They've suddenly appeared. It's clearly not the group of 144,000 descendants of the tribes of Israel that suddenly shows up in heaven. This group is a multitude unlike the 144,000 that, quote, no one could count, unquote. They were not from only one people, such as the Hebrews, but from every nation, tribe, and people. If you don't know who this group is, don't feel bad. John didn't know who they were either, until a, quote, elder, unquote, told him who they were. This is from Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. It says the following, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For those who say that when you read the book of Revelation, you just don't see the church present after chapter 3 until the very end of the book, well, Here the ecclesia is. You're looking right at it. These people, 
waving their palm branches, standing in a number suddenly all together. They don't show up one at a time or trickle in. They just suddenly show up as a great multitude. They had just come out of the tribulation. Apparently, they showed up as this one big group and are people who have had their robes made white by what Jesus did for them at the cross. These people, who obviously have bodies because they're wearing robes, they didn't trickle into heaven as they died over a period of thousands of years. They were suddenly present and came out of the Great Tribulation. Do you see the similarity here in what happened as described by Jesus on the Mount of Olives? Let's compare. In the Olivet Discourse, you have the sign of the sun, moon, and stars. The heavens are shaken. Then you have the gathering of God's elect from the entire earth. Then great fear takes place by those remaining on the earth of what is coming. Then we see in parallel in Revelation chapter 6 and 7, these same things occurring. The sign of the sun, moon, and stars. A great earthquake takes place. God's elect show up in heaven. Then great fear of the day of the Lord from those remaining on the earth. And the day of the Lord is declared to have now come. I've greatly boiled down the Olivet Discourse passage and the Revelation passage, but it does accurately show the essence of the events in both. There are several other passages of Scripture that talk about the specific end times events mentioned in the Olivet Discourse and Revelation chapter 6 and 7. Here's one from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall forever be with the Lord. Absent from this passage is the mention of the sign of the sun, moon, and stars. But let's again compare this scripture with the Matthew 24 passage I talked about earlier. Here's the first Thessalonians passage boiled down. The Lord returns with the voice of the archangel and with a loud trumpet call. Then the dead and alive in Christ are caught up to be with the Lord. In the Olivet Discourse, what do we see? We see Christ returns with his angels and a trumpet call. And the elect of God are gathered from throughout the earth. Here's another passage, this time in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-4. to Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That one should sound familiar from past podcasts. The topic that Paul is concerned with in the Second Thessalonians 2 passage is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the church being gathered together to him. Paul pairs the second coming and the rapture together. He also associates those two things 
with yet another event, the day of the Lord. Paul explains that the day of the Lord will not occur until after a falling away takes place, and that the man of sin, the Antichrist, has been revealed. This man of sin, the Antichrist, will be revealed by proclaiming himself to be God, or committing the abomination of desolation. Let's compare this passage with the Olivet Discourse. 2 Thessalonians 2 says there will be a falling away that takes place. The Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation. Then Jesus returns. The church is gathered to Jesus. And the day of the Lord begins. What do we see in the Olivet Discourse? Many will fall away. The Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation. Jesus returns. The church is gathered to Jesus. Here's another passage, this one, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 52. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Here's the comparison with the Olivet Discourse. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, A trumpet sounds, and the dead and alive in Christ are all changed. In the Olivet Discourse, a trumpet sounds, and the elect are gathered. It might be easier to see this if you had it all written down in some kind of chart where you can compare the passages side by side. I included such a chart in the book. You could go back and listen to this again and make some of your own notes if you want. I hope you're tracking with me here and seeing the direct similarities in all of these passages. One passage may not contain all the signs and events, but they contain enough to know we're talking about the same overall event of the second coming, where one adds a detail and leaves out another. The next passage provides yet another detail and might ignore something else. Here's yet another passage that talks about the second coming. In the book of Revelation, chapter 14, there are several events that take place. In a previous podcast, we've already looked at one of those events involving the eternal gospel. You can read about that in Revelation, chapter 14, verses 6 to 7. Well, a little later in Revelation, chapter 14, we see the following harvest take place. This is Revelation, chapter 14, verses 14 to 16. And I looked and beheld a white cloud... And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time is come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Jesus is the one like a son of man. The son of man is the phrase often used to address Jesus about 29 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. Jesus is given the go-ahead here to harvest the earth. This harvest is quite different than the one that immediately follows in Revelation in which the wicked of the earth are harvested and thrown into the great winepress of God's wrath. Assuming that those that Jesus is harvesting are the righteous, as opposed to the wicked, which are harvested separately, this passage also matches up nicely with the Olivet Discourse. Let's compare. The Revelation chapter 14 passage says, 
the eternal gospel is spread through the entire world. And then, Jesus harvests the earth. The Olivet Discourse, what do we see? The gospel is spread through the entire world. And then, Jesus sends forth his angels to harvest the elect. To paint an even more complete picture of this cosmic event of the sun, moon, and stars, let's look into the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verses 30-32 to 32 says this, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Do you recognize these events again? Wonders in the heavens, a red moon, a darkened sun. Do you get the part about everyone, not just the Jewish nation who calls on the name of the Lord, whom the Lord calls will be saved? Most importantly, did you notice that this event, the same event Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 and revealed to the Apostle John in Revelation 6, comes before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Let's compare Joel chapter 2 verses 30 to 32 with the Olivet Discourse. Joel says, there's a sign in the heavens, the sun and the moon. Then those whom the Lord calls his elect are saved before the day of the Lord. The Olivet Discourse, the sign of the sun, moon, and the stars, and then the gathering of God's elect are saved. Then we have Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, we find the Apostle Peter quoting the book of Joel. Please notice the New Testament verification that this sign comes before the day of the Lord. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord to come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Besides the again obvious similarities with the Olivet Discourse and this passage, Note the mention of fire and smoke here, and in Joel chapter 2. I believe fire and smoke will play an important part in what in the Olivet Discourse is called the sign of the Son of Man. It's a pillar of fire and smoke that preceded the tribes of Israel as they were led through the wilderness. That same sign would be very recognizable by those Hebrews of the future and serve as a tremendous validation of who Jesus is when he appears. In the book of Daniel, the very book that Jesus cites in the Olivet Discourse, it adds consistent detail to what we've already put together here. Daniel chapter 12 contains one of the Old Testament's best descriptions of the rapture. There, we see the following sequence of events. One, the archangel Michael, who is the restrainer, stands back and allows Satan to do his worst. This happens at the midpoint of the seven-year period. Then secondly, there's an unprecedented time of trouble for Israel. Third, those whose names are found written in the book of life are saved. Then fourth, there's a resurrection of the dead. 
The book of Isaiah, chapter 13, speaks of the initiation of the day of the Lord with consistency to the rest of the passages. The sun, the moon, and the stars lose their light, and heaven and earth are shaken. Just as we've not seen any indication of God's wrath up to this point in the Olivet Discourse or any of the scriptures, it's very significant that the word wrath has not even been used up to the parallel point in the book of Revelation, when the sixth seal is broken. After that point in the book of Revelation, the word for wrath is used several times, 13 by my count in the King James Version in the book of Revelation, and always in connection with God's wrath. Here's the announcement of that wrath coming. This is in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 to 17. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So according to all these passages, God's wrath will not begin until we are all well inside of the seven-year or 70th week of Daniel period, and only after the rapture occurs. The event of the sun, moon, and stars does more than accompany the rapture of the church and more than signal the return of Christ. This sign declares the day of the Lord, the outpouring of God's wrath, is about to start. The sign of the sun, moon, and stars marks the end of Act 1. The curtains draw closed. The stage is reset. The message is, look out world, you have a much different situation on your hands as Jesus breaks the seventh and final seal on the scroll that contains God's judgment. Although the Olivet Discourse does not directly address all the events that take place in association with the Day of the Lord, the Revelation passage that's tied to the events of the Olivet Discourse does. After the church has been rescued from the earth and the heavenly announcement is made that the great day of God's wrath has come, with the opening of the seventh seal in Revelation, seven trumpet-playing angels step forward into heaven. As each angel plays their prophetic melody, a judgment from God is unleashed on the earth. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 8. Before the angels start to play their trumpets, there is a, quote, silence in heaven, unquote, that seems to John to last for what he calls about a half an hour. That's in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. This sober break in the action separates the prior tribulation-related events of Revelation from the wrath of God, which is about to be poured out. It'll be an awesome time for all that are witnessing this event from a heavenly vantage point to stop and revere. Let me try to sum this up. Several passages of Scripture throughout the Bible that are associated with the second coming of Christ tie into the framework of the Olivet Discourse. As we look at these passages together, we can gain an increasingly clear and complete picture. It's a picture of one second coming of Christ, and not two. With all of the shouting of archangels and trumpet blasting, it's not a picture of a secret coming. With all of the similarities tying the events together, it's not a picture of two separate comings. All the passages of his return and the gathering of his elect are referring to the same event. This composite picture of the return of Jesus and rapture of the church has used up every scripture that pre-tribulation rapturists would point to to make their case.
The distinct similarities of the events described in these related scriptures bear witness to one cohesive composite picture of the rapture of the church and second coming. The rapture or rescue of the church and the second coming of Jesus are inseparable. As we look at this picture, we clearly see that God's wrath starts immediately after the church has been rescued away from the earth. There are many more scriptures that pertain to the end of the age that we've considered in this chapter. The Old Testament is packed with them. What we've focused on here are only those that pertain to specific signs that immediately precede the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church. Although there's not one scripture passage that contains all the events, all of the scriptures are united by two or more significant events. By tying the scriptures together, we gain a more complete idea of what the Lord's return will be like. I'm going to read for you now the complete composite sequential picture of the second coming of Jesus to this earth based on the passages I cited. Number one, the second coming, rapture of the church, and the day of the Lord is preceded by the revealing of the Antichrist. Then the gospel is spread to the entire earth. Then the sign of the sun, moon, and stars occurs. A great earthquake takes place. The heavens are shaken. The seas become very violent and roar. The Lord appears to descend from the sky, coming on a cloud. Jesus is accompanied by his holy angels. There's a loud shout and a trumpet blast. Jesus is accompanied by fire and smoke. The dead who know Jesus as Savior rise from the grave in their new bodies. They are gathered by angels to meet the Lord in the air. Those who are alive at the time and know Jesus as their Savior change into imperishable bodies and are gathered by his angels to meet the Lord in the air. Then Jesus takes the elect back to heaven, even if temporarily, where they proclaim praises to God. Finally, the wrath of God, the day of the Lord, begins. There are many other events that will take place upon the return of Jesus to this earth. But this was a pretty comprehensive biblical list of things that we know about his initial arrival and gathering of the elect known as the rapture. Pretty exciting stuff and definitely something to look forward to. Next time, we'll talk more about signs. Until then, God bless and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.